Should I pay down debt or invest? This is the most common question we get asked, and we're going to answer that and more in today's show. Residency can be such a letdown when it comes to building your financial foundation, but it truly doesn't have to be that way. If you're a physician wanting to take control over your financial future and take back the freedom you deserve, come hang out with this money nerd. No long hours or sleepless nights. Just you, me, and the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and welcome back to the third and final episode of the launch of season two. I'm really excited to have you guys here with me today because today's guest really needs no introduction. He's the physician behind the blog, podcast, YouTube channel, and what feels like a dozen other resources dedicated to helping physicians get their fair shake on Wall Street. We're going to cover some really important topics from living like a resident and what the heck that actually means to answering the most frequently asked question that we get asked all the time. Should I pay down debt? or should I invest? So let's welcome the white coat investor himself, Dr. Jim Dolly. It's almost silly to introduce you because every physician knows who you are, but Dr. Jim Dolly, thank you so much for being here. Really excited to have you on the show. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. Of course. So anyone who spent any time at your site at all has read countless times, live like a resident. And these are simple yet super powerful words. Could you give the listeners a few pieces of advice or a few tips around what this phrase actually means? Sure. But before I get into that, I got to issue some praise here for Ryan. You oh, guys no. are listening to a pretty awesome podcast here, and he doesn't know I'm going to do this, so I'm just launching into it. Maybe he'll edit it out. I don't know. But this is awesome. Not only the brand of financial residency, I love that concept, but what he's doing to educate people and then, if needed, to delve into their finances personally and provide those financial planning services is huge. I have met hundreds of financial advisors over the last seven years. And I'll tell you what, those of you who are working with him, you got a real gem here. So just want to give you a little bit of praise on your own program here before we launch too much into the questions. That's super nice. And we're done. (laughs) (laughs) But live like a resident. Yeah, those are the four most important words in any presentation I ever give. Really, that is truly the key to becoming rich as a physician. It's those first two to five years out of residency. If you can just maintain the same lifestyle you had as a resident for just a couple more years, you take that difference between your attending income and your resident lifestyle and you use it to build wealth. You can use it to pay off your student loans. You can use it to save up a down payment on your dream house. You can use it to catch up to your college roommates and their retirement savings. Basically, if you will do that, you can screw up almost anything else in your financial life the whole rest of your career and still be okay. So live like a resident for sure. It's not the easiest thing to do. And I know a lot of docs have a lot of trouble with it. But even if you only do it a little bit, it's going to help a lot. So I hear this all the time. It's like, yeah, I know I should do this. But it's in reality, it's really hard. We've sacrificed so much, so much time, energy. I mean, people are putting off having families, all sorts of stuff. And they're like, I finally made it. The blinders are off. The carrot is gone in front of you, right? It sounds terrible analogy, like the donkey and the carrot. I really feel like this whole time with my wife, we've gone through this. It was, oh, well, I just want to go to med school. And then, okay, I'm finishing. Oh, I got, I got this thing called residency. And I just, it's only three years. I just got to get through it. And oh, by the way, it's three more years of fellowship because I want to specialize. And it's like, okay, we're done, 
right? So I, I totally sympathize with everyone here. How do we overcome that piece where I've sacrificed so much as an individual, as a family, whatever it is to do that. And now you're, you're telling them, Hey, let's live five more years like this. How do they overcome that mentally? It's definitely the right advice. It's just hard to do. Yeah. Well, I think something that can help a lot of people, if, I mean, some people just take that and they go, oh yeah, of course I can do that. No big deal. But there are people that feel exactly like you described that that is just too big of an ask. I can't do it. And I think the solution for them is to give yourself a raise. Mm. In fact, give yourself a huge raise, give yourself a raise that anybody in corporate America would be ecstatic about. Give yourself a 50% raise. That's what I say, 50%. So go from living on 50000 a year to living on 75000 a year. And still, if you're making a typical attending physician income of two hundred dollars to $300,000, that's still going to give you plenty of money to use to build wealth. What you can't do is go from living on $50,000 a year to living on $200,000 a year. If you do that, you'll wake up and you'll be 50 and you'll realize that you still have a net worth of just about zero and you haven't made any progress at all in the first 15 or 20 years of your career. And that's just not worth it. Mm -hmm. And it's harder when you have maybe a stay-at-home spouse. And I know you've got some maybe probably real life example here, but stay-at-home spouse, you're on one income, you know, you've delayed and you're trying to do it. It's different when you're a pediatrician versus a dermatologist making five, 600. I know the income disparity is like, oh, well, I mean, I could live off 200 because I make 600 now. Any advice for the lower paying specialty that might have, it's just one income and, and they want to inflate a little bit? Well, I tell you what, I don't have a lot of sympathy and I'll tell you why. Because I made less than the pediatricians when I came out of residency. I was a military doc. Okay. I made $120,000 a year. Mm -hmm. And we lived on, I don't know, 50, 55,000 mm -hmm. for four years. I mean, we lived in a little tiny rinky-dink townhome, not in a great neighborhood, not in a great school district. We didn't take awesome vacations. I drove a car that cost $1,900. It didn't have AC for four years. And because of that, I'm 43 years old. I can do whatever I want with my life. Mm -hmm. And I, so I think you got to focus kind of on what you want out of this and realize that yeah, you feel like you've been putting stuff off for a long time, but you've got a lot of life ahead of you. Oh, yeah. You know, you're 30 years old, maybe 35 years old. You got 50 or 60 years ahead of you. What's two or three? And so I think no matter what your income is, obviously it's harder to pay back student loans when you're a pediatrician than when you're an orthopedic surgeon. I mean, that's a no-brainer. But there's nothing you or I or anybody else is going to do in the next five years that corrects those sorts of disparities. So basically all we can do is deal with them in our own personal lives. But honestly, I've been more impressed with the intra-specialty pay differences than the inter-specialty pay differences. Mm -hmm. I'm amazed that there are pediatricians making $350,000, $400,000 a year, just like there are pediatricians making $90,000 a year. And maybe if you've really got a big debt burden to get over or you really want to build wealth quickly, maybe you need to look into what those docs making $300,000 plus as a pediatrician are doing and do some of those things. Mm -hmm. And it may involve a lot of painful call. It may involve running your own practice. It may involve hiring a bunch of nurse practitioners or physician assistants to work for you. I don't know what it's going to take. I haven't really looked into that. But I'll tell you what, if I was a pediatrician, I'd look into it pretty darn closely. Yeah. And it's probably a combo of a lot of those things on your own practice, maybe geographic arbitrage, all sorts of stuff. I know my wife in Vegas, you know, it was actually really hard for her to find specialty work as a peds poem. But if she opened up her own practice, she'd probably be making a million a year. 
but her thing was that wasn't her lifestyle. She didn't want that. And that was the choice that we made. And we actually ended up still debating how I wanted to push out the show, but we're going to talk about how we paid off my wife's loans using real estate because we have a more aggressive risk uh, profile, if you will. But love the advice here. Let's jump into how we can help new attendings understand their finances. So they just completed training and they really need a place to start. Let's give them some financial foundation that, you know, help them with any tips or hacks to get started kind of down that right path. Sure. I think the first thing you got to do is become financially literate. Beautiful. Most docs are stupid when it comes to finance. People make fun of us. In business school, when they're talking about a crummy investment, what do they say? They say, all right, who are we going to sell this one to? And the whole class raises their hand and says, doctors. You know, it didn't, it didn't really, work like that, but it, I mean, I get what you're saying. But, you know, and if it's really bad, who are we going to sell this to? Dentists, you know? <laughs> you know, so in some ways, we're for good reason, the laughing stock of the financial world. And so the only way you can overcome that is actually learning this stuff. And finance has its own language, just like medicine does. It's not always intuitive, and it doesn't take that long to learn, but you've actually got to put some effort into it. You mm-hmm. got to know what a Roth IRA is. You got to know what a 401k is. You got to know how a mutual fund works. You know, you got to know the difference between principal and interest. All these basic terms, you just got to learn what they mean. And so I think that's probably the first thing. Mm-hmm. And the nice thing about being a new attending is it's all kind of just-in-time learning, you know, like the whole Toyota thing where they have the parts arrive just in time for them to need them. Well, it's perfect for you to get this kind of education right as you can use it. For instance, you start your new job as an attending, it's time to learn about 401ks. So you go on the internet and you read a few blog posts about 401ks, or you hire a a fee-only financial advisor and you talk to them about how a 401k works. And however you want to get it, you got to get that education. But so many people, they have this 401k at their job, and they haven't even read the plan document, right? Mm-hmm. We've got this second job as a pension fund manager. We all have it, whether mm-hmm. we know it or not. And you might as well read a little bit about it. The employer is required to give you the 401k plan document if you ask for it. So ask for it and then actually read it. Understand what fees you're paying. Understand what the investments are that are available to you. Understand how the 401k works and whether you get a match and all those kinds of things. You know, I think you just got to dive into that stuff and start realizing that there's more to your life than just clinical care at this point. And you've got to spend a little bit of time learning that stuff. So I think that's first. I I love it. I think you can always, I look at it as you can, you assign a dollar once a, a job, right? And so you've got this whole army of dollars out here earning and working day and night for you. Sometimes they suck, they lose value, and sometimes they do great and they make money, but you need to be responsible. And there's lots of books. Obviously, Jim, you've got a book. There's tons of great books out there. Um, I like The Millionaire Next Door is another one to kind of put things in perspective. There's some easy stuff that I'll link in the show notes. You know, there's great blogs out there, obviously the whole White Coat Network. Hopefully people are learning something on this show, but there's other shows out there, even non-physician specific stuff. They can get the basics of investing on in this day and age with internet and technology it is easy to do this. Maybe 20, 30 years ago, it wasn't as easy, uh, which is why advisors sell that black box crap that they do, even though, thank God, it's stopping finally. But yeah, great first one. Let's go with the next one. What else you got? I think the second thing to do is to actually calculate some numbers. Know what your income is. Know how much you actually owe. I'm amazed how many docs don't actually know the total of their student loans. Mm -hmm. Get yourself your beverage of choice one evening, sit down and actually write it down on a piece of paper, the interest rates for each of your loans, the amount of the payments and the total you owe and add it all up. See what you owe. 
I think your savings rate is something to really focus on at that point of your career. Mm-hmm. Actually calculate how much is going towards savings and divide it by your gross income. And I think it's important to know that. I think it's important to know your marginal and your effective tax rate. I think those are important numbers to know. So I, I guess that's the second thing I do is start actually calculating numbers and figure out where you stand. That's great. So like, and to kind of go high level on this, uh, you're basically saying like create like a balance sheet, right? Yeah, understand exactly. where your assets exactly. are, you know, where your liabilities are. I talked with uh, Eric Rosenberg on a previous episode all about like how to actually do this. So you guys can check that show out and understand a little bit more around like a net income statement, a balance sheet, all, all that kind of stuff, net worth. Yeah, that's that's a good tip because in reality, what you are is your family's chief financial officer and -hmm. you should treat your, you know, your family, your family finances anyway, maybe not your family, but your family finances like a business. not your family. (laughs) You need an income sheet. You need a balance sheet and, Mm -hmm. and actually know where you're at. So I think that's pretty helpful. And then I think the next thing you need is a written financial plan. And some people, you know, like me, you go spend some time on internet forums, you read some books, you read some blogs, and you can write your own financial plan. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a certain percentage of docs out there that can do that. There are other docs that need a little bit more help. You know, I put together this online course, started it earlier this year. It's provocatively titled Fire Your Financial Advisor. But what it really is, is it's designed to help you write your own financial plan. That's Mm -hmm. what it is. And so some people with a little bit of help like that, they can write their financial plan. Other people should go hire a financial advisor that will help them to come up with a financial plan. And until you have that written financial plan with your goals in it and how you're going to get there and what your asset allocation is going to be to get there, I think you're kind of just floundering. Mm -hmm. And so I get these random questions from people like, which of these funds should I choose in my 401k? And I'm like, well, what does your plan show? You know, you have to have a plan to answer those kinds of questions. Exactly. And and there's just no plan. Mm -hmm. So whatever it takes for you to get a written financial plan in place, you got to do that. And the sooner you do it, the better off you're going to be. And you know, the plan's going to change. It's not like this thing's set in stone. Your goals are going to change. The amount of money you have, your income, it's all going to change as you go along. But that's still not a reason not to have a plan at the beginning. And then just change it as you go along. That's actually more reason to have a plan. Exactly. Like it it really is. And I I tend to tell people, okay, think of your life now and think of what it was two years ago. How much has changed? And they they sit for and they go, man, you know, a lot. Maybe we had a kid, maybe we finished training, whatever it is, man. I'm like, you're probably going to experience different things, but the same amount of change in the next couple of years. You might buy a house, you might have a kid, whatever it is, get a written plan. And if you're going to do it yourself, and I actually haven't gone through your course. I, I know that the title I thought it was funny. Everyone that I know that's an advisor freaked out. But you could do a plan in a DIY setting to just start on a page. Literally, I mean, make like an investment policy statement and have some goals kind of written out and do some education, you know, listen to blogs, podcasts, whatever, sit down for two weeks, just consume a ton and write your own basic one now. That is not rocket science. It's not that hard. I know everyone listening could do that. The nice thing about trying to do it is you realize where the gaps are in your knowledge. You go, oh, I, I don't know how to do that. And then you got to go find the knowledge, whether that means hiring someone, whether that means doing more reading or whatever. You've got to go out and fill in those gaps. And so I think even the exercise, even if you totally fail at it, I think the exercise is worthwhile. Yeah. You know what I think I'm going to do is I think I'm going to create a template on a one-page financial plan, and I'm going to stick it in the financial residency group. So anyone listening, if you're not a part of the group, come join us. You can go to financialresidency.com slash community, come join the group. I'll make it uh, available for you. And it'll just be a starting point 
for you guys to be able to do a one pager, some questions to ask, some things to write down and just understanding assets and liabilities and, and how that all works. Jim, I think that's great. And I love the one thing that you, you do, and I want to come back and, and touch on this really quick, is you mentioned how savings rate's important. And I think at this stage of any physician's career, like right now, is the savings rate is more important than anything in terms of like investment return and, and stuff. Because you have very little investments, but you have a crap ton of income. Right? I mean, you have a lot of earning potential coming. And that what you do with those dollars that are coming in, that the job that you assign is extremely important at this stage because that really helps build that foundation. So now you get used to making educated, correct decisions. I think that's exactly right. I, I think really focusing on the savings rate early on is what matters. Now, later in your career, when you're 10 or 20 years into it, that investment return does start mattering quite a bit. Mm -hmm. But at the beginning, it's all about your income and how much of it you're saving. I mean, I look back at my first million and I think 80% of it was just cold, hard, brute force savings. It was money I had earned and not spent. And that, that was interesting to me to see that, you know, you hear all these things about compound interest, but there's a fair amount of money you just got to put in there. It takes before time. Before anything really starts compounding. <laughs> it takes time to compound. Uh, and, and it's funny because when I talked to a physician on fire on the show a while back, you know, when he was talking about like sequence of returns and that he had a really good sequence to help kind of bump him right at 2009, 10, 11, were you invested? Was that inside your first million or was it truly just you were just saving as much as you possibly could? Yeah, I mean, that's what it was. I didn't have that much invested by 2008. I was only two years out of residency okay. and I was only making $120,000 a year. Yeah. So I, I didn't have that much money at that point. And so, yeah, it really was what I saved. I mean, I can pull up my uh, my little spreadsheet here and I could probably even tell you what my you know, oh, investment was. Oh man, we're cracking out spreadsheets on the show. Everyone yeah, just shuddered a little. Uh-oh. <laughs> Let me see what I got here. We got, uh, yeah, right here, investment tracker. Whipping it out here. Oh, boy. Let's see what I actually had at the beginning of 2008 in my retirement money. Okay, 2008 in my retirement investments, I had $97,000. By the beginning of 2009, you know, this is in the middle of that nasty bear market, I had uh, 103000 Most people are like, how the hell did he come out ahead? Like some of the, so, some yeah. of the older ones listening that were yeah, actually invested. I was pouring all kinds of money into it. At least it felt like at the time, it was a lot of money to me. You yep. know, $120,000 a year was more than I'd ever made in my entire life. So one question I get all the time is, should I pay down debt or invest? And I'm talking almost every time I talk with a physician. It's so, my most common question for sure. It, it really is. I get I mean, it every day. I, I feel like I do too. So I thought, you know, who better to chat with this on? So for the physicians that are just finishing residency, how should they proceed? Well, here's the deal, right? There's no right answer to this question most of, of the time. And that's what people have to understand is it's you're looking for the right answer for you. And because of that, that's why we get the question so often because the answer is different for everybody. Mm -hmm. I mean, on the extremes, there's a right answer, right? You've got 30% credit card debt. The right answer is pay down debt. Likewise, if you haven't even put enough money into your 401k to get your employer match, the right answer is invest. But everywhere in between, the answer may be different for you. But some things to consider. If you still have tax-protected, tax-advantaged retirement account space available to you, that should make you lean toward investing rather than paying down debt. I think paying down debt is a much better proposition once you've maxed out all your retirement accounts for the year. Yep. So what, he, what he's talking about is the 401ks, the 403bs, and the IRAs. Let's make it simple. Yep. 
Well, I mean, I'd throw even more stuff in there. Some people would throw in, of course, their HSAs if they're eligible for one, maybe 529s, at least up to the amount they get a state tax break on it. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so there's some other things to consider there. The other thing to consider, I think, is the interest rate. You okay. know, if you've got debt, like a lot of these people coming out of Caribbean medical schools with 8 and 10% student loan debt, that even, is a very attractive guaranteed rate of return. Even non-Caribbean medical. I mean, my wife was her weighted average was seven uh, percent, roughly. Well, I mean, yeah. it's still expensive. Yeah, that's a pretty attractive investment. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my view of it would be once I'd maxed out those retirement accounts, you know, mm-hmm. assuming I'm in my live like a resident period here, okay. and I still had money to save above and beyond these retirement accounts, I'd pretty much put everything against student loan debt at that point. Six, seven, eight percent student loans, that's a very attractive investment. And so I think that's a good thing to do. Now you start getting down to four percent, three percent, two percent, one percent. I think you can make a pretty good case to carry that debt so long as you're investing the money. Thank you. <laughs> and the problem is people don't invest the money. Exactly. You know, instead they buy a Tesla or yeah. they go to Europe or whatever. And so I don't overestimate your ability to do that. Too many people justify carrying around these 2 and 3 and 4% debt for years just because they feel like, oh, well, I can do better than that with my investments. But you didn't actually put the money in your investments. And so I think you're better off probably at that point even paying off 1% and 2 and 3% mortgages and student loans just because you're probably not as likely as you think you are to actually invest the difference. That's and literally have- every advisor's nightmare, by the way, is like yeah. when we say, hey, guys, you don't have to pay off this debt because it's low. Let's go invest and do this. And then all of a sudden they don't. And you're like, oh, boy, I should have just told you to, to do that because I didn't realize that you were going to go to Africa for $30,000. Yeah. I mean, here's the deal, right? When you have debt, everything you consume that's not a, a just bare bones necessity you're basically consuming it on borrowed money. You know, if you go on a trip to Europe and you owe 4% student loans, you basically borrowed at 4% to go to Europe. And if you wouldn't do that for a European vacation, you should be paying off your debt rather than going. And uh, I think that's probably the way to think about it. And I'll tell you what, even beyond the numbers, it's amazing how people feel about their jobs and about their lives and about their relationships when they pay off their student loans and then later when they pay off their mortgage. Mm. Just the difference in the outlook in their lives and the risks they're willing to take and the amount of crap they're not willing to put up with at the hospital, it's pretty amazing. You know, Once you're debt-free, just how free you feel. When your feet aren't on the fire, right? That's and it, right. And it's human nature to, to want to spend and want to do these things. It's really tough. But uh, yeah, the weight that was lifted when we paid off my wife's 184000 and change Debt was uh, was amazing, which is well less than average these days. I know you my know, average client's not at, even that bad. My average client's at two hundred eighty three thousand. So, but my wife, we lived separate for four years. Right, I was in San Diego. She was doing med school at, at KU in Kansas, where she grew up. She lived at home. She didn't take any extra loans for anything else. I'm the one that came and, and basically visited, or I paid for her ticket because I was working at the time. But she took loans literally just for school. And it was lean for her in order to do that. And, and it's still 184000 Yeah. Yeah. I mean, interest accrues interest, right? Because, you know, and these are mistakes. Like, it, it, just because I'm an advisor doesn't mean I make mistakes. So we thought originally, hey, she took out like 125 ish And we thought, hey, you know what? She's going to go. And she always wants to work in a, in a hospital setting. She's going to, PSLF is going to be amazing for her. We were doing all the right paperwork. We had her in all the right stuff. 
And then we realized, you know what, this probably isn't the best option for us. And at that point, we cut ties about four and a half years in and refinanced. And we did it on a, on a super interesting, weird way. This does not work for everyone, but we actually did a HELOC on a family member's house and then paid that. And then we ended up investing the difference in real estate and ended up uh, selling that real estate, paying off the debt and all, all sorts of fun stuff. But glad it all um, glad it all worked out well for you. I've seen a few of those schemes could, go bad. It could it could go bad in yeah, a heartbeat. Some, it, it really bad could. with the family relationships or, you know, if there's a real estate market crash. But that's often yeah. a great option for refinancing. If you can get real low interest deductible debt mm-hmm. on real estate rather than non deductible, you know, non uh, dischargeable debt like student loans, that's high interest. I mean, you can really make a difference there. Yeah, You still got to throw all the money at it, you know, unless you score some serious appreciation on the real estate. Well, that's how we did it. (laughs) (laughs) That's how we did it. Vegas kind of exploded and we caught the the wave and it ended up working out well. But um, Amazing how volatile Vegas can be. I had a classmate that went there in uh, 2006 when we came out of residency and bought a fancy condo. And I think it dropped like 80% of its value. It was something else. Condos got crushed. Housing there. So like, you know, starter homes in in town were like 330,000 in 2007. We're talking three bedroom, two bath, 1800 square feet, small yard, just nice little cookie cutter starter home. Great home for anyone. In 2000, early 2010 or late 2009, those same homes were about 120,000. Wow. So the people who bought at the super peak got crushed. The people who bought at the bottom made a killing because now those homes are back at the 250 to 280 range, still not above peak pricing by any means, but, uh, and they rent for 15, 1600. Good little investment properties if you know what you're doing, but. Right. Uh, yeah, you can, you can and get especially, hurt real fast. Especially real if you can hold on long term. I think yeah. it's Josh Metal that says time heals all wounds in real estate. Time might mean 15 years, though. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you make a real bad investment, uh, you're, you're going to be holding uh, quite some time. So, so okay, let's let's recap this really quick because I, I want to make sure that the listeners can walk away with something actionable here. So, and this is in generality. This is not specific. Again, and I have a disclaimer in, in the beginning, Jim. So don't don't worry about that. But we've got basically get your employer match. And then we're looking at, you know, I think, would you say seven or 8%? I, I usually say seven, pay off that high interest rate debt. Totally agree. Totally and, agree. And with that. Nothing guaranteed in life, but that interest is coming, right? So great thing to pay that off. And then we looked at maximizing all the retirement accounts. Yep. I agree with that. Okay. And then we were saying if there was assets that we could invest in that were higher yielding than the debt, right? If our debt's at 3% and you can get, you can invest in something that's much higher than that, that is probably the better option to do that. Yeah, although I think you have to take risk into account. You know, if you got a 3% student loan, that's a risk-free 3% rate of return. Where you, maybe you can get 6% in the stocks and beat that, mm-hmm. but you know, you got to take on some risk. So I think you have to adjust a little bit for that. But sure, if if you're borrowing money at 2% and you think you're going to earn 8% on it, that's a that's a reasonable risk to take. And I think like real early in the career, that's probably your your trade-offs. As you get kind of further down, there's alternative investments you could look at. So I know I mentioned real estate. Uh, we had a great guest on a few shows back, Vina talking from uh, Enzo Multifamily on uh, syndication deals and and uh, where you're looking at multifamily investing. And those things can yield a lot higher return than paying off a 3% debt. So it might not be applicable right as you leave training, but those are other options that you could look at alternatives once things are, are maxed. 
Especially given the uh, usual minimum investments for those sorts of investments. Usually you have to come up with fifty dollars or $100,000, which the year you leave residencies, really a big ask. You know, that's tough to come up with that kind of cash, even if you're living really cheaply. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it definitely is. And that's a great point, Jim, to, to make. And then we've got paying off the moderate interest rate stuff. So, you know, the 4%, 3%, things like that. Is there anything else in that kind of, uh, I almost look at it as like a waterfall uh, that you think that we maybe have missed? No, I think you've hit the basics. It just gets murky there in the middle. When you get in it's there tough. with the 3 4 5% interest rates and you still got some decent investments available to you, you know, there's no real right answer there. But, mm-hmm. you know, as you get out toward the extremes, the obvious answers become more obvious. So, Jim, for like the four physicians that live under a rock and have no idea who you are, <laughs> can you tell them a little bit about yourself and uh, where they can hear more about you and find all the bajillion pieces of content that you've created that are just amazing? Sure. I mean, bottom line, I'm a practicing emergency physician. I just went down to half time this year. So I had a little bit more time for, you know, this white coat investor empire. But the white coat investor is really a community of high income professionals, mostly physicians, but with a lot of other high income professionals as well, um, who's basically trying to help each other to not do dumb things with their money. You know, my goal is to help people get a fair shake on Wall Street. And that started out as a blog. There's also a monthly newsletter. There's a forum. There's a book. There's a podcast. There's a YouTube channel. There's a subreddit on Reddit. There's a Facebook group. You know, we've got Twitter and Facebook social media outreach going on there. Uh, We had a live conference this March. We'll probably do another one here in about a year and a half. Um, we've got some online courses available. So basically, however you like to consume your financial information, we're trying to get that to you. And we title it all White Coat Investor, just trying to build that brand. But, you know, you jump on the internet and you Google White Coat Investor, it'll all pop right up. Awesome. Well, keep up the great work. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me on. Today, we're going to be discussing an article that was posted on the site, thewealthydoc.org, titled Booster Productivity with a Goals Program. In it, the author discusses why taking time out of your busy schedules to actually reflect and write down goals is critical to your overall financial success and personal happiness. He details out a framework that's going to help you in the process of determining goals and launching them into action. I quote, we must set our goals thoughtfully in the context of our life. Only 3% of all Americans have a goals program designed to reap the most benefits from life itself. Why do so few people have a goals program? The most important reasons are fear, poor self-image, lack of understanding of the benefits, and ignorance of how to develop a plan. A successful program can only be achieved when the steps are taken to develop a balanced, confident, hopeful picture of the future, despite any fear that may creep in. Okay, so what I really like about this article is that he breaks down six ways to actually pick your goals and then includes and and wraps it up with seven steps on how to actually set those goals and get those goals into motion. In my experience, I see physicians bust their butts going through all this education and training to actually become a doctor. But once the course is already set, they rarely stop to think why they're actually doing it. It's so easy to get caught up in the, the countless mundane tasks that we do without ever making sure that they align with, with our values and our goals. So thanks, Wealthy Doc, for all that you do and another excellent article. For those that don't regularly follow his content, you really need to. It's, it's a great blog. I'll make sure to drop this link in the show notes at financialresidency.com. 
Oh man, that was a great show with Dr. Dolly, popularly known as the White Coat Investor. This episode had some great ideas where we talked about why living like a resident can be a long-term financial disaster preventative. We also discussed becoming financially literate to avoid falling prey into otherwise avoidable money traps. Lastly, we discussed why creating a financial plan, either by yourself or with a financial advisor, can help keep your eyes and feet forward down the right path. Other than the great information that Jim presented, we mentioned a freebie. And if you want to download that free guide, that one-page financial planning template, head over to financialresidency.com community to go directly to our Facebook page, and you can grab it there. Hey listeners, listen up real quick. As your host of the Financial Residency Podcast, I'm not an attorney, a psychic, nor do I play one on TV. I'm glad you came here to learn and get excited about your finances. There's no purchase necessary to win, but you do need to know that your money decisions should be talked through with someone knowledgeable about your specific situation. That person is not me, unless you're already a client, then that's a totally different story. So consult your attorney, CPA, or heck me, a fee-only financial planner to help get you on your feet the right way. Next week, we have an amazing show planned with our special guest, Andy Hill, from the Marriage, Kids, and Money podcast. We'll be talking about how couples can improve their communication and actually help their kids understand money. It's an action-packed show with lots of takeaways. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.